Welcome to I Communicate on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome to I Communicate, and uh, glad to have you here with us today. And I have to start out today, before I introduce uh, my partner in crime here, Joe Lyman, I, I I just need to start out by saying I am so fired up about the Boston Bruins right now. And, and here's why, though. There's a reason, Joe. You're going to appreciate this. So the Bruins just knocked off the Washington Capitals in the first round of the playoffs. But it was something I read, Joe, before the game last night where they eliminated the Capitals. And the captain, or not the captain, their best defenseman came out with a quote before the game, and he talked about a winning mindset. And he said, we all, the entire team, top to bottom, has a winning mindset. Now, for our listeners, you might be saying, oh, well, most athletes say that. What's the big deal? Well, here's what the big deal was. When he defined a winning mindset, he spoke about attention to detail. He talked about reviewing pre-scouting reports in the game plan and taking extra time to make sure those details were being remembered and, uh, and observed. But he attached the word preparation to a winning mindset. And that got me excited. And I really felt like the Bruins were going to win last night when I saw that. So when, when people talk about a winning mindset in life, Joe, the, what we talk about is how do you prepare for a difficult conversation and use emotional intelligence as preparation techniques? How do you use conversation intelligence as preparation techniques? And what we're talking about today is we're talking about when companies face changes in leadership. And I don't mean just any kind of leader. I'm talking about specifics here. I'm talking about someone on the senior leadership team. I'm talking about someone who's been at the company an extended period of time. So what does extended mean? I don't know, maybe eight to 10 years or more. Okay, they've, they've got a, a valuable presence. But now the company has the big challenge of how do we explain this? Now, if someone's leaving, because there's two scenarios, right? If, if, a, if a leader is leaving the company on good terms and everybody gets to talk about it and have a conversation, that's one thing. But if there's some ambiguity and confusion around the change in leadership, now there's a whole narrative that has to be created by companies. And the narrative, and this is, Joe, what I talk about all the time, and this is where I want to start with today. The problem with these narratives is how it's the telephone game, how the message gets cascades all the way down through the organization. So when the senior leadership team is sitting there and saying, okay, uh, the CFO just left, John Smith, he or she has been here 10 years now. How are we going to explain this? What's the message? You can then come to an agreement among the team, but then when it has to be communicated to the various levels of leadership down and then the employees themselves, the problems happen. And Joe, where I want to start with, by the way, welcome to the show. Great to have you back. Why, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. So Joe, where I want to start with this around leadership changes is we know, Joe, that when changes take place, we talk a lot on the show about change management and dealing with change, but when changes take place, there is a whole variety 
of concerns that everybody in the organization has. And it doesn't feel like we give as much time to that part as opposed to framing something in a way to make it not look as bad or as ominous. So what are your thoughts on that, Joe? Well, I, I think you're spot on. And I think it's a on, on some level, it's simply a continuation of what we do in general, right? So if you're frontline in an organization dealing with the customers or the clients or whatever the situation is, um, you're usually the last group of people, if they do this at all, that somebody checks in with. Even before they issue things like new setups, new procedures, we often don't talk to the very people that do it. And uh, if we do, they're often an, almost an afterthought, if you will. And this is a huge missed opportunity, in my opinion. And I, I think that translates into it's not our habit, right? I mean, we've, we've talked about habits extensively in the past. It's not in our habitual mode to include these folks in this discussion so that when we start talking on a high-level event like this, you know, a significant shift in the individuals, in the personnel, in upper management, whether it's coming or going, as you say, um, we, it's not in our habit to bring them into the conversation. So it's not in our habit to go, what about the frontline people? How are they going to be affected by this? How about the middle managers? How are they? And, 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 and I'm sure you've seen it, as I have over the years in working with various organizations, is that there's a price to be paid for doing this and, and missing that opportunity. And, and I've seen situations where the, the, the change has been uh, basically derailed by the fact that the communication surrounding the change was, was, was poor or in some cases almost non-existent. And it had an enormous negative impact on the outcome of how that change was enacted by the organization because there was simply this massive deficit on, in, in terms of communication. Well, and so w where I want to go to build on what Joe said is there's two directions you can go. And by the way, both directions need the attention. But the first direction is what does the narrative look like? What are the components of the narrative that are communicated on down? And Joe, here's, here's what I think are the three fundamental pieces that are typically part of that narrative. Number one, we don't know why the change is happening. Right? So we immediately have to explain to people, don't worry, here's what's going on. And by the way, that first piece totally depends on whether companies trust the authenticity and genuine nature of that narrative. So that's number one. The second thing people could start to question is, if it's a senior leader, is the company in trouble? Like, so if a high enough leader is changing and coming in, why? Like, why all of a sudden, randomly... Are we making that change? Is it just that that person didn't perform? Is it because it's uh, a clue and a trend to something else? That's number two. And Joe, number three is the ultimate, and it connects everything, is, is this the beginning of more dominoes to fall? So if you are on the executive team, if you're the CEO and you're crafting the message, and this is part one of the message is, our agenda, not the little guy, as Joe was just talking to, not the frontline people and dealing with their concerns and fears. It's how do we want this to look is part one. You know, those are three pretty huge uh, obstacles to overcome. And 
How, what does that conversation need to include, need to look like, Joe, where it just doesn't sound like company speak, generic company speak? Well, I, I think you've nailed it in terms of the most important. I actually have this highlighted on my list, and it says, clearly understand the cause of change. So if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to offer that to people, you've, you've already got a problem. You've already got a problem that's going to be, you've already got a situation that you're creating that's working against you, right? And the second question, of course, is what's next, right? How many times have we seen a company say, oh, we're going to have layoffs? I, I, I literally saw this with a company that I was working with. They, they came in one day and they were informed that 79 people had been let go. Now, there was, interestingly enough, a general perception amongst the employees that I was working with that this was probably not a very bad thing, right? That there was a sense of, uh, there was, there, there, that there was some excess that could be trimmed. And many of the folks that were let go were, I, I think, aware of the situation before it happened. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the folks that were still there knew that something like this was probably necessary. And the, the, the organization said, okay, we just want to assure everybody that's it. We're done now. And then um, two months later, they came in to find that 40 people had been let go. And this, of course, was a disaster because exactly as you said, what was the next domino? And no, so they, they actually had a, a pretty decent stage to work with from the beginning but then they either – so, I mean, there's only two possible explanations for this is it, we're done, and then two months later you let 40 people go. Explanation number one, you're just massively incompetent and you don't know that you have to let 40 more people go within the next 60 days, uh, in, in which case you you're clearly should not be the people running this organization. Or you lied, in which case clearly these you should not be running this organization. So, so you know, Joe, you've talked about this. This is one of the things I've learned from you. You've talked about this on the show before, about perceiving change as a bad thing as opposed to a natural part of the evolution of life in man. So, you know, I'm big. When I teach conversation intelligence, I'm big on how you frame information. So the challenge is... You can sit up there in front of your senior leadership team as the first level and say, look, we've let Johnny go because we see this as an opportunity to do what? As an opportunity to improve and whatever. And it may be very authentic when they say that. The problem I think a lot of organizations have at the senior level is when they say that, they're worried that people are going to be sitting there going, yeah, yeah opportunity. Sure. What really happened here and what went wrong? Exactly. So Joe, how is it, like, again, back to the conversation piece. So what we're going to do, Joe, is we're going to come back. We're going to go to our break. But when we come back, I want you to discuss how do we frame that conversation to make it naturally and genuine as an opportunity, but also acknowledge past mistakes or oversights. How do we kind of blend those concepts? So when we come back from our first break, we will discuss. For Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. This is I Communicate. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, 
Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to iCommunicate. If you'd like to call in to the show, the number is 508-871-7000. I am Mark Altman, the founder and president of Mindset Go. We help people become more confident and effective communicators. And when I say people, I'm talking about all levels of leadership. We work with organizational development, executive coaching, so on and so forth. One of the very talented uh, trainers I have working at Mindset Go is Joe Lyman. And Joe, where we left off is we're talking about building the narrative for authentic communication. What are the ingredients in that narrative that we should be communicating to that team? Well, I think the first ingredient is is universal in terms of its application, regardless of what's happening, and it's honesty, right? When they do surveys of, of employees and they say, what is it that connects you to a leader? Uh, the number one answer never changes. One, one uh, group of um, leadership development team has been doing this survey for more than 30 years in, in dozens of countries, and the number one answer across the board is honesty. And with okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay. I'm not letting you continue just yet. All right. I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'll let you continue. Okay. So when you say honesty, okay, so Joe, what you're saying is that if the CFO got uh, terminated because he stole money from the company, we should tell everybody that he stole money from the company? Yes. Really? Be- because here's the deal. Some of them know it because that's an unavoidable reality, right? I mean, someone else in the company knows it. It, it didn't happen in a vacuum, and it's not going to end in a vacuum, so to speak. So, Joe, is there anything, and I know this is a hard question because I'm putting you on the spot, but is there anything that you would kind of flinch at if you were the CEO of a company and you say, finish this sentence, well, I hear what Joe Lyman's saying, but I don't know that I would always be honest. There are certain situations I might try to cover is there, or are you saying, no, just be honest? Well, both. If, and, and let me explain. It is, it is reasonable to expect honesty. But sometimes the honest answer may be this was a personal situation that arose with this employee that we will not be going into detail for. So if so, when, 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 when somebody's stealing from the company, that's not personal. That's the company. Right. That's that's something that you need to talk about. That's something that the, that the company needs to understand and let go of. And if you don't tell them, it's nearly impossible for them to let go of because they're going to create their own stories. OK, so I want our listeners. This is very important. What I just heard Joe say, and it's an important takeaway, is he's saying honesty, honesty with boundaries. OK, but, but the key point what Joe said is. I, I, I interrupted him that way because I could just imagine people sitting there like, well, I wouldn't say this or I wouldn't say that. The point is, if you try to talk around it or if you try to misrepresent something, everything else that comes after that gets interpreted in a very different way if there is a question about your honesty or genuine. So, Joe, do, am I correct in saying honesty with boundaries? You a hundred percent. And and as I say, there's there's you know we can be honest. When people come up to us, we should not be deceptive, like any in any circumstances. But if I come up to you, a random stranger, and I say, "Hey, how much money do you make in your job?" It is perfectly reasonable for you to say, "I'm sorry, I'm not comfortable sharing that." You're you're just being honest. Right. But to say, but to tell me something that's not true 
or to tell me, you know what I mean? Just yes, so, yeah, I think yeah, it's a great So, so I, I think your, your description of honesty with boundaries, right? There are some things people are simply not entitled to know. If it's about the company, the people that work at the company are generally speaking entitled to know it. If it's about an individual, let's say somebody develops a, a, an illness, let's say, and that's why they're leaving. And they say, hey, please respect my wishes and do not share with any of the, the, the folks here at the company that that's why I'm leaving. Great. Then we say this individual has chosen for personal reasons to, to take themselves out of the picture. Great. That's being honest and that's being reasonable. But if it's a criminal activity of some kind, here's the problem. We are human beings and human beings' number one form of communication is storytelling. And so the moment something happens, we want to know the story behind it. And if it's relevant to our situation, which the theft of something from the company is seemingly relevant to everybody's situation at the organization, if you don't tell us what the story is, we'll make up our own. And, and this happens on senior levels, mid-levels, uh, frontline folks. It doesn't matter. Without this understanding of what's going on, w- without context, we can't appreciate and understand why these things are happening. And, you know, we talked about, I need to understand the cause for change. Well, if you don't give me any information, I just make up my own causes. Well, and I think you had said something to me during the break that I want to share with our listeners, because I think it's really important. Joe, Joe had talked about, you know, we don't, people don't care about events and dates and times and all that information, especially when it's something sensitive or something that's going to affect them. Joe said, and it can't be more simple than this, they want meaning. Right. They want me and they want to be able to connect the dots. And, you know, the story, boy, Joe, you know, I I tell you, people get so triggered by certain words. And story is one of those words, because when you say if you're in the mindset of let me tell you the story, it almost seems like like a an eighth grader lying that's telling you a story. But the point is. The story is the meaning. The story is the authenticity. The story is the truth. And, uh, and, and I just think people get caught up, as you said, Joe, on events and dates and times. And at the end of the day, people aren't even close to worried about that in that moment. They want to know what that narrative is and what the truth is. Well, and that's the key. You don't want to know, if again, to go back to, let's say it was theft of the comp- something from the company. You don't want to know what dates things were stolen. You don't want to know how much was stolen. You want to know what the understanding around the event is. What is the story behind it? So we discovered this, we addressed this, we have terminated this person, and we will move on and move in a good direction, and we will try to make it more difficult for this situation to repeat itself. So, Joe, tell me, tell me, and, and listeners, here, here's I'm going to give you all the five ingredients that I think are important in building this narrative. And, and the first one is what we've been talking about, why did this happen? You know, what does that story look like? Why did this happen? The second one is gratitude. I think it's important when someone who's been at an organization a long time, there's authentic gratitude, being appreciative of the contributions. And by the way, everybody, not just saying we appreciate John's contributions. That doesn't really feel meaningful. If you said, hey, this was a difficult decision, but in reflecting back, boy, John really made a big difference at this company. He did this, 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 and this. That's what I mean about appreciating the person. So you have, why did this happen in an honest way? The contributions of the company, what awarenesses the company has made as a result of this decision. When they are going to refill this position, what's going to be different and why? 
Like why are, are there certain characteristics or qualities we're looking for in a person that would be relevant in filling this position? And last but not least, Joe, it's how does the, the domino fear, you know, if people are sitting there worried about what other dominoes would fall, I would speak to that. I would speak to the fact that if the CFO is being replaced or the CTO is being replaced and we have some new awarenesses, I would talk about, look, we're trying to create a culture here. You know, we're trying to build this organization and take it in a certain direction. So are there other dominoes to fall? Not necessarily, but we are going to be evaluating our staff, our leaders, our team to make sure they consistently support the culture. And if that in turn creates dominoes, then there may be dominoes, but there's no planned like tomorrow dominoes. So I think those are the ingredients, Joe. What are your thoughts? Well, I think you're spot on. And you brought something up at the very end, which I think is is crucial to the success of a venture like this when we're talking about this level of change. We said we don't intend to make any additional changes, but we're not opposed to them, right? We're, we want to see what happens. And I think that becomes a, a, a kind of a key to setting the stage and setting the tone. Because you and I both know that <clears throat> most people want stability. But there may be times when we have to say as leaders that there will be a period when we will be working to create stability, but sometimes that leads to changes. And if we're honest with people and we say, hey, this get, what we've done now moves us in a, in a good direction forward, um, we will see what needs to happen next. And then tell people, but we will continue to communicate our understanding as we move forward. Because in, in any organization, when there is significant change at the top, the, in, in a sense, the underlying question that, 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 that employees are asking themselves is, what did we learn? Right? Are, are we going to repeat this process in two months, in two years, in 10 years? What did, what did we as an organism not an organization, but as an organism, what did we learn in order to to avoid repeating this process and to make it as clean and as clear as possible? Yeah, well said, Joe. And when we come back for our next segment here, we're going to shift. We've been talking more about part one, which is the narrative from the top. But now we're going to shift to care about the people who are being affected by this change and what they're thinking and how to how to really expand on that narrative so the full benefits and stories are being told. So, For Joe Lyman, and I'm Mark Altman, and we will continue our talk on Changing at the Top when we come back. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. I'm here with Joe Lyman. And where I want to start in this segment is I want to talk about a term I've mentioned on the show from time to time. It's called the writing reflex. And the writing reflex is spelled uh, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. And the writing reflex is something that parents teachers, coaches, and bosses do to tell people what the right answers are instead of allowing people to come to conclusions on their own and do critical thinking and problem solving. Why do I bring this up, you ask? 
Because one way to demonstrate and model the writing reflex, and remember, we don't want to use the writing reflex, is when someone says, don't worry about it. My, my ex-wife, who I still get along very well with to this day, Joe, I remember when I would compete in sports and I would be very disappointed after the game and frustrated. And she said, oh, it's just a game. Don't worry about it. And I said, yeah, don't say it's just a game. It's not just a game. Um, this, so, this is the equivalent of telling people who are angry, just to calm down. Right, right, exactly. So, so we're talking about change at the top. So when you say things like, there's nothing to worry about, you don't have anything to be disappointed about. When you basically tell people what their feelings should be, that's an epic fail, right? It has no value whatsoever. And that's why I wanted to start with the thing you don't do is minimize or devalidate people's feelings when you're communicating change. Now, a lot of leaders out there might be like, yeah, 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 I know that, I know that. But one of the questions, Joe, that I hear often asked by executives when there is a change is they'll go up to one of the reports and they'll say, how do you feel about this change? What are you worried about? And I think to myself, man, if you came up to me and asked that question, first of all, I wasn't prepared for the question, so I haven't given it a lot of deep thought. And by the way, whatever thought I have given it, it's very negative and very fearful. Um, and the second is, I don't know if I can communicate to you what my fears are, because if I communicate what my fears are in those moments, I might be judged. It might affect the person who's asking me. So how do we, how do we try to learn and understand, Joe, an individual, what they're really thinking and what they're really scared of, how do we set the tone in that conversation? Well, and I think there's two aspects to in answering that question. And the first one is you do as much as possible beforehand, right? So in, if you have set the stage for a good working relationship, then you're going to be a, you're going to be in a better position to ask those questions. So, and, and, and the other problem is if you wait until after the fact to say, how do you feel about what just happened instead of how do you see this going and, and discussing it as a, as a pre-situation instead of a post-situation, you've kind of limited what you want to hear. You don't mm. actually want feedback from somebody about what's happening. You just want to know what their situation is. Mm. And, and as you say, that's a very tenuous situation to put people in, right? It's like saying, so, you know, the election's over. Who did you vote for, right? It's too late to do anything about it. And people might be really uncomfortable, as you say, in offering answers to that question. Well, so I, I think you hit, hit something, hit on something very important, Joe. I, I'm sure you do as well. I encounter a lot of leaders who actually would say, Mark, to be honest, you think those are the wrong questions? I'd be nervous to even ask those questions because I don't. Now, now watch how this is. We talked about cascading messages. So if the person at the top of the food chain creates this narrative for the senior leadership team, the senior leadership team is now delivering that message to the director level, we'll say. Then now what's going to happen is, do you really want to know the answers because you don't have the answers yourself? So if I said to Joe, if you work for me and I said, so Joe, tell me what's going on. And then I'm going to get bombarded with a series of questions around fears that exist. And I don't really know the answers or I don't really have something relevant or meaningful to say. I may not even ask at all because what's the point? I won't have any answers. 
And if we don't have a relationship where I'm comfortable answering that kind of question to, to my leader, when, when they come over to me and you say, hey, how do you feel about this? I'm going to be, I'm going to answer the question the way every single employee has ever answered an upper level question of that nature. I'm going to say, oh, it's fine. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. fine. Yeah, everything's fine. Fine is the, of course, official default answer for how are you doing? How do you feel about this? Oh, it's fine. I understand. It's fine. So the, go ahead. No, go, I was going to say, but, it, but of course, it's meaningless, right? Because it's, it's the wrong question or it's the wrong time for the question or it's a question that's inappropriate given the, the surrounding relationship between uh, the, the two individuals. And because of all of those things, it's, it's not going to get a real answer, right? Because we haven't created an environment that, that allows me to give you a genuine answer to a genuine question. And to be quite honest, if I'm, if I'm not familiar with the idea that you would ask these questions on a, on a right. regular That's... basis, I'm going to perhaps my default assumption might be that you're not really interested in hearing what I genuinely want to say, that your listening to me is limited to um, please give you the appropriate and correct answer as opposed to what I really feel about the situation. Yeah. And so so what's interesting is, so, you know, back to the how do you feel about this change? What are you worried about questions? Joe and I are talking about psychological safety, creating that psychological safety. But that aside, and I'm not minimizing that at all, is it the, the, the answer is if you're a leader and afraid to have that conversation because you don't have all the answers, it goes back to what we said at the top of the show, meaningful, authentic, honest you can tell someone you don't have all the answers. You can frankly even share some of the concerns you have. Be real, like, hey, you know what? I got to tell you, I totally understand what concerns you may have because I have some concerns. However, I am confident and comfortable that our, le- assuming this is true, I am confident and comfortable that our leadership is transparent. They are telling the truth. And as things continue to unfold, I have their blessing to give you information in the same way I'm getting information. So I think there's a way to answer without answering. You don't have to feel like you have the answers to every domino that may fall or every change that may take place. But if I'm a leader, if I'm a parent, if I'm a coach, I'm never avoiding a conversation because I don't feel like I do have all the answers. And that's what worries me, Joe. Well, and that's the key, right? Some listeners may be aware that Brene Brown offered a talk on vulnerability as a TED Talk. And within three days, it became the most listened to TED Talk in history. And it remains one of the most listened to TED Talks. After she was done, of course, with that level of of awareness surrounding her, her conversation, she was approached by Fortune 500 companies and CEOs were calling her up and saying, hey, can you come give a talk on vulnerability in our, in our, in our organization? And she said, yes, I'd be happy to. And then they said, uh, could you do it without using the word vulnerable? Hmm. And she said, so true. no, but it, this gets to the heart of the matter. It's very difficult for people to demonstrate vulnerability. It's very difficult for people to admit that there are things they don't know. But this goes to you know advice that was given many, many years ago, 2,500 years ago. A very wise sage said that if you know yourself and you know your opponent— then you need not fear the outcome of a hundred battles. And that, you know, in, in company parlance, if you know your situation and you know the people that you're working with, 
then you don't have to worry about the conversation. But if you've never had this level of, of, of real meaningful dialogue with the leaders or with the frontline people, then you can't just jump into it. That kind of conversation doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists when, the, when you have worked hard to create that trusted situation. You know, we, leaders often like to depend on trust they haven't actually built or earned. They just kind of hope that it exists out there in the ether so that they can call upon it when the need arises. Yeah, and so so I want to I want to share Joe building on that. I want to share a story that uh, a true story that just happened. There there is an organization I'm working with that just had a um, the key executive step away after I believe it was like 26 years with the organization. So I was talking to one of the people at the director level, not the C-suite level. And I was asking him, I said, so how are you feeling about this? Like, What's going through your mind? What are your fears? Like, talk to me. And he says, well, I have two fears. He said, the first fear is that this new person will come in and want to do bleep their way. Okay, got it. And the second fear is, I got to tell you, Mark, this guy had my back. And this new person who comes in may not have my back. So, Joe, we can agree those are pretty two high-level fears, right? Those are a big deal for every single person in the company. Okay, so let's let's address the first one. The new person will want to do bleep their way. I said to him, Joe, I said, what way? Like, you're you're going on a premise. If you look at the current person that just left, did they did you like every way they did business? Right? And he's like, Well, no, I didn't agree with all the decisions. So I said, so I'd like to know specifically, when you say they're going to want to do it their way, what is their way that would be so hurtful wrong. and wrong and upsetting to you? And we, it actually drew us into a, like a root cause conversation. And so my point in saying that, Joe, is that when someone has this enormous fear that new person will want to do it their way, we have to kind of understand what the that, that that doesn't tell you anything. We have to kind of understand what that fear is. Correct? Well, and and that's spot on because fear is is a very strange animal. It doesn't have a shape or a form when it first appears. It takes on one later on, but it's just like I'm afraid they're going to change things. I'm afraid they won't have my back. So these fears may very well turn out to be completely baseless. But we can create them and sustain them with absolutely no outside help whatsoever, just from what exists inside <laughs> our imagination in our head. And, and unless people give – well, there's the story, right? So we will create fascinating and interesting stories about what's going to happen with the new leader. Unless somebody comes forward and says, here's the story around the new leader. Turns out it's a story similar to the old leader, but there will be changes, there will be differences, there will be a period of adaptation. And, and bringing these together and saying, so here's what, what's gonna happen. We're gonna be transparent about the changes that are coming. And if we recommend a change, we're gonna talk about why we think this is a good idea. And then we're gonna ask you what you see is a good way to make this change work. Because if we just come in with a, a you know, and, uh, don't get me wrong, if the building's on fire, don't send an email to everybody to, to get out. But under normal circumstances, when change takes place, if, if you're going to be really successful, listening to the people that you're about to lead is probably going to be very high on the list of things that the new leader wants to be doing. And if it's not, and there's not a good reason to avoid that situation, 
Again, the building's on fire, great. Listen less, act more. But without that that basis, it's kind of a big deal to listen to the people that are going to be affecting the change that will come from on high. Yeah, so we're going to build on what Joe said when we come back for our final segment. We'll talk about, we'll give you all a crash course on uh, loyalty uh, and how to deal with that over this uh, changing at the top. So for Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back for our final segment. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. We're talking about internal communication. When there are changes at the top, how to make that communication effectively cascade on down through the organization. And we talked about loyalty right before the break. And look, here's the thing about loyalty, right? This is the other person the guy said to me. He said, you know, this old leader had my back, and I'm not sure this new leader is going to have my back. And the question I posed to him, Joe, is I said, do you mean he had your back where if you had an ethical or moral violation at the company that essentially, no matter what you do, you had a get-out-of-jail-free card where you were not going to have any ramifications or consequences? Or do you mean have my back in terms of that if he supported and said he was going to do something to advocate for me or to follow up with me, he would indeed follow up on those things because they're very different. And he laughed and he said, well, I wouldn't expect uh, him to give me a pass on ethical and moral violations, but I just feel like he had my back. But he couldn't articulate, Joe, what having my back specifically meant. And again, just like the new person will want to do bleep their way. What does it mean, Joe? What? Joe, if you feel like I have your back, define that for me. What am I doing that demonstrates I have your back? Well, and and that's a key question, right? Does it does it mean you'll defend me no matter what? Right. Right? So your parents have your back when you're growing up, but it doesn't mean if you steal the family car and you crash it and you're drunk and you're 16 and a half years old, they're just going to be like, ah, oh, it's just kids being kids. That, and, and, and what you get is, what does that really mean? And what it, what it ought to mean and what it hopefully means is that they will support you, right? And they will, when you make good decisions, they'll support you. And when you make a good decision that turns out to be a wrong one, they will still support you. Joe, that to me is it. It's the middle, right? It's like, so yes, I'm supported. But when I make a mistake or when I make a, they're not going to look to fire me or to be punitive or whatever. It's they'll stick with me when I, when I flawed or when I make a mistake, right? You know, there's a story of Warren Buffett, one of his financial advisors, was called into the office one day to talk to him. And he'd made a mistake that cost the company the opportunity to make $10 million dollars. And the story says that Buffett said, do you, know, do you understand what you did wrong in this situation? And the gentleman said, yes. And he said, great. Try not to do it again. Well, and, uh, go ahead. Finish your thought. I was going to say, to me, that's having my back. 
we understand that people are going to make mistakes, but what is the continuum that, that surrounds that mistake making? Yeah, if you, do you understand what you did wrong? Do you understand how to fix it if that's possible? And do you understand how not to repeat it? That's it. So that's the, to me, that's the essence of have your back. But, but I think you've touched on a key problem, which is that people know that expression, but people don't know really what that expression translates uh, to in, in real terms, in real time. Well, and Joe, I think, I think it is, it's twofold. It's that, and I think there's this expectation. So let's go back to the person says, I want him to have my back. So now I've made a mistake. So if I've made a mistake in the organization, do you expect this person to have your back, whether you cost the organization $5, a million dollars, whether it affected two lawsuits of the organization? Like there are varying degrees of mistakes, but I think a lot of people, Joe, professionally and personally, that there is a code of loyalty, that there is a very black and white you either are with me or you're against me. And, of course, the problem with that is it means that there's no opportunity for conversation. Right, right. And so I think we really, it goes, it's, it's, it takes two to tangle, right? First is, how do we define loyalty and having your back? And second, what are your expectations of the person? And are they unilateral expectations? Or can you understand that it's situational based on what's going on, Right. And, and people sometimes get upset. They say trust is either absolute. But there's a difference between trusting someone and supporting them when they make a poor decision repeatedly, right? If you make a poor decision once and you learn from it and, and you're able to, to grow and develop as a result of it and your mistakes come with that little follow-up, that's great. If it's the same mistake, you know, for the third, fourth, fifth time – then we have to have a different kind of conversation. So it is entirely possible to have someone's back and yet hold them responsible and hold them accountable for their actions. Those two are not mutually exclusive. And exactly as you say, they are sometimes perceived as just that. They are, yeah. So look, we want to cover, Joe and I want to cover one last thing before we wrap up today. And it's we want to summarize and go right back to where we started today. You know, we talked about creating the narrative, right? And so with... We, we want to talk about the word vision. You know, what are we creating here? So when changes are taking place at the top, if we use words like opportunity, um, they could be true, right? Because it is an opportunity to create a culture and uh, build, you know, define your vision, build your vision. And so, Joe, I think the key here is there are things that when you're sharing your vision on the heels of changes being made, there are key things that have to be touched on. And one I know we agree on is, you know, what's in it for me? You know, what's in it for them? Well, you know, and it's, it's only been that way for about 70,000 years, <laughs> right? The Latins had a perfect expression for this. They said, qui bono, who benefits, right? And that's a real question when there's change at the top. And, and not in a, in a negative, selfish way. But when, when there's a significant change, we want to know what was the basis for it? Who, will, who was benefiting from things being the way they were if the change was, you know, a, 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 if you will, on a negative basis, right? We had to let somebody go for some reason. So like, what was happening before? And also, who will benefit from this change? 
right? Not just what's in it for me, but in terms of the story, is this going to be good for the company? Is this going to be good for, you know, three people who run the company? Is it going to be good for the people who do the frontline work? Where is my aspect in the broader picture? What part do I play in the narrative for the whole company? So, Joe, let me let me end with one final question. You're the CEO. I'm the skeptical employee sitting there. And I raise my hand and I say, Joe, I appreciate everything you're saying. You're telling a great story here. You're doing all the things you're supposed to do that Mindset Go taught you. And are you familiar with any time in the history of corporate America where there has been a change at the top and there weren't changes that took place that adversely affected a few people, a few processes, a few jobs. Isn't it safe to say that there's always people that are going, and I hate using that word, but am I right? Uh, I think so. And I think if I'm going to be real in that situation, I have to say, will everyone be in love with the new situation? Perhaps not. But will we be transparent in how it's presented? Will we be transparent in how it's represented? And will we be transparent in why we're doing what we're doing? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then again, it goes back to Lao Tzu's wisdom. You don't need to fear the outcome because you've done all that you could to the best of your ability and the rest is up to others. Awesome. All right. Well, Joe, as usual, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, look, everybody, there's so much change going on, organizational change, individual change, um, changes in leadership. So look, this is what we do at Mindset Go. It's one of the fundamental things is we help people with internal and external communication. We do executive coaching. We do leadership training. And um, so we're available. If you'd like more information how to contact Mindset Go, it is info at mindsetgo.com. And the number is 978-793-1159. Jasmine, thank you for doing a great job on the board, as always. Not a problem. And Joe, you're the best. Thanks for joining for the show. The pleasure, as always, was mine. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks again, everybody.